Hi, everyone. Welcome to the table. I'm Debbie Manning, one of the pastors here, and we're just glad that you're with us tonight. We have a couple things for you. First of all, we're going to be meeting in the parking lot for a 5 p.m. worship service right here at Bethlehem Lutheran on November 1st. So we hope you will join us. Now, the caveat is we're going to hold it loosely uh, based on weather, but that is our hope. That's what we're shooting for, so hope you'll be there. Uh, the other thing on November 1st is we will be celebrating All Saints. So if you have a loved one that you've lost in the last year, we'd love a picture, the name of your loved one, your relationship to that loved one, um, sent to Patty Kretzer, and that would be patty at the table mpls.com. You can do that, and then we will celebrate the lives of those that we've lost and those that we love. So thanks for that. Hey, the other thing that I really wanted to talk to you all about tonight is that as we move into the winter, um, as we see our numbers on COVID cases increase, it is becoming more likely that we will not return to indoor worship. And so one of the things our team has been uh, wrestling with is how do we make sure that people stay connected? We want to invite you guys every Sunday night, 5 p.m., to get online and worship with us, but we know that we need more. So the way that we're hoping to do that is to make sure that each and every person that wants to be is plugged into some sort of small group. We've got lots of small groups that have been going on for years. This summer we started um, gathering groups and a lot of people have connected and they're going to keep on going. But if you're not connected to some sort of group, we're asking, I'm asking, would you please email me, Debbie at the table, mpls.com, and let me know that you'd like to get plugged in, get connected, and and I'll make sure that that happens. I think for many people that I've talked to, they've told me that's been church for them during this COVID season. And that's our hope moving forward is that we can stay connected, stay in relationship through small groups. So thanks for that. Hey, last but certainly not least, we are so grateful for your ongoing generosity and keeping this church running. So if you would like to up your giving or start giving for the first time, um, you can go to our website and you can click on the giving tab and take care of all that there. The other thing that we've been so grateful for in the past and want to continue to invite people into in this month of November and December is end of the year giving. That has been extremely helpful to us as a community. And so we just wanted to let you know that that's an option as well. So thanks for all of that. And thanks for being with us tonight. And I'll turn it over to Matt for the message. Hey, good evening, you guys. Welcome to church. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And as usual, we are so grateful that you are here with us. Thank you for saying yes in this season. Thank you for sticking it out in this version of church that we're doing right now. Listen, we're in a series right now that is trying to speak to the season that we are in. As you know, we are 16 days away from electing a new president for our country. And so we are trying as a community to ask, what does it look like for Jesus to be the president in our lives? What does it look like to look at Jesus to understand where we get our cues from? How we shape our lives, how we use our voice, where we position our bodies, all of that and more. How do we actually set Jesus as a precedent as we make our way forward in this life? And how do we do that together? I was at, um, I was at, I was in the shower last night. You'd be relieved to know that hygiene still matters in this season for the Moberg family. <laughs> While in the shower, I was listening to this interview with one of my favorite authors, David Dark. And one of the questions that was asked to David Dark is, 
Uh, Mr. Dark, where did you first like create or build up some kind of framework for the social critique that you employ? And he started talking about how um, really it was before graduate school, even before high school, before teenage rage against the machine days, and dates all the way back to growing up inside of his parents' church. And for whatever reason, while in the shower, it just struck me that at some point in the future, our kids, our little uh, Evan Ills and Hazel Hamiltons and Grace Kellers and Juice, they're going to look back at this time. And if we play our cards right as a people, if we actually position our bodies according to the, the Jesus as a precedent, they're going to say that I grew up inside of a community that cares about more than what happens in the community, and it shaped who I am. That's why we're in this series. We're trying to be shaped into the kind of people that actually look like the person, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're doing that in this series by asking, what are the key pieces of Jesus' own ethical framework that he lived on that we're invited to take on? Last week, Debbie spoke about Sadiqwa. Debbie, did we, that is the pronunciation, right? That's what you rolled with? Sadiqwa. And, and what she pulled out of that was the need, the call, the command to treat other people's needs as holy. This week, we are going to look at Mishpat, which typically gets translated as justice, and is very intimately tied to righteousness, sadiqwa. If sadiqwa pushes us to treat the needs of people as holy, mishpat moves us to protect people from those who are making them needy. Mishpat is this judicial term. It is, it is a term that was employed to understand how do we declare definitively what is right and what is wrong, what is noise, and what are the names that are perpetuating crappy things in the society that we live in today. How do we actually go in to figure out what is the right way for us to live and what is the way that we're setting the standards for other people to live on? When Jesus did this, he, he lived it out in such a way that it actually reminds me of the prophet Dietrich Bonhoeffer who opposed Hitler and the Nazis. And, and one of the quotes that he came out with, um, I think it perfectly encapsulates not just the, the, the aim of Mishpat, but the relationship between Sadiqwa and Mishpat. He says this, We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Which, which then obviously begs the question, how has your spoke driving been going lately? How is your aim in driving the spokes? Have you been aiming at the actual wheel or just the ones who have been aiming at you? Ha- have you been driving spokes in violence or just those that you've discerned to be violent? What do I mean? Well, let me explain. Let me tell you a story. I've told you this story before, but I've been locked inside my house for seven, eight months now, and so I don't have a lot of new materials. So don't mind me if I tell you it once again. Three years ago, Halloween, I was going through this stretch where I could not sleep. Couldn't, couldn't find sleep. This is like pre-trazodone prescriptions. Couldn't do it. Wasn't going to happen. So what I would do instead is that instead of like laying in bed crippled by the anxiety of when sleep is going to come, I would partake in the neighborhood watch club and walk the streets of Minneapolis and just enjoy myself in the peace and quiet. It's a rare thing to find that as a parent, and so I capitalized when it came. When I would do this, it, it was by and large like a pleasant experience, except for those stretches in the sidewalk where there were no street lights amplif- uh, illuminating the path ahead of me. It was all shadows. I don't care that I'm 35 years old. I'm still convinced that I'm like the target market for kidnappers out there. And I'm convinced that I'm like one shadow spot away from being snagged. 
And so what I would do is I would get to these shadow spots, having a nice leisurely stroll, and then I'd move into a full-blown sprint at 3 a.m. <laughs> so ring cameras all around the neighborhood are watching this man <laughs> just doing these... <laughs> These brief sprints. But it's so dark, I couldn't see my own hand in front of my face. And so I am rapidly approaching a dark spot. I am like stretching before the sprint. And then I get in there and all of my worst fears come true. Out of nowhere, in the darkest part of the shadow, there is a man that jumps out at me at 3 in the morning and starts screaming inaudible things, which in response, I started shouting some things back. Things that I, as your pastor, will not say in order to preserve and protect the reputation that I have in this church. I proceeded after yelling back at this man to throw my phone at him, and then I I did a frisbee of my keys, hoping that somehow that would keep him from taking me away forever. What was interesting, though, is that after doing the screaming and after doing the throwing, he stood still and I stood still. He said nothing, and I kept my mouth shut. That is until I started moving again. Once I started moving again, the thing started yelling again, the thing started moving again, and then I connected a few dots right there in the spot. I quickly found out that the people who live inside of that house, the people, mind you, who walk around our neighborhoods with their pageantry waves and their big smiles, and they're always handing out chocolates to the nearby kids, by night they are sadistic creeps that buy those Halloween props that have motion detectors on them and will jump out at you and scare the living out of the local insomniacs who are already having a difficult life as is. And so now I'm actually realizing, did this really just happen to me? And so now I have to get on my knees, crawl into their yards, hope that they're not going to notice me, and find my keys and phone, which I don't know where they are at this present point. As I am doing that, I am very annoyed, but I'm not afraid anymore. As I'm doing that, I feel very stupid, but I'm not scared anymore. Because I realize that the thing that presented itself to me in the shadows in the yard was actually just a prop produced by something in the house. The thing that I thought was this monster was actually just a puppet, and now I could see its strings. Uh, I could see the thing behind the thing. And when I think about that story, maybe even just the sermonic reason why I'm telling it to you right now is that what if we did that with Donald Trump? Or what if we did that with your dad? Or what if we did that with um, that all lives matter aunt of yours? Or the homophobic next door neighbor of yours? I'm not saying like belittle or dismiss problematic behaviors, especially from people in power. I think it is your call and duty to restrict people in power who are perversely using said power for dehumanizing means. But I do wonder that in that process of restricting somebody who you deem to be a problem, are you seeing if they actually are producing the problem or are they just a puppet and the strings stretch beyond them? Is there something behind this someone that could actually explain who this someone is right now? Jesus, he has this moment in Mark 5. There's this fascinating story. We've read it together before. I'm going to read it once again. But It is this beautiful political satire that is actually trying to name this very thing. In Mark 5, uh, the writer writes this. He starts the story by saying, they went, Jesus and his boys, in a boat. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now let's pause real quick. Prior to this scene even fully being set, Mark wants you and I to understand that there's a man that you are about to meet. And when you meet him, you're going to meet him in a particular place. Mark goes out of the way to say that everything that's about to happen, it is happening in the region of the Gerasenes, which is fascinating because that's actually not where it was happening at all. 
Like if you look at where Jesus was coming from, where Jesus is going, he's not in the region of the Gerasenes. In fact, actually, the, the region of the Gerasenes is 30 miles southeast of where Jesus presently is. 30 miles away, away from where Jesus actually is. And so the question that we ask when we encounter a text like this is, why does Mark want to set this story in a scene like that? And the answer is because there is already another story that was set inside of the scene. A little context. Mark puts pen to paper and he starts writing his account in uh, roughly 70 AD, which is about 40 years after the death of Jesus, but it's about 40 minutes after the destruction of Jerusalem. Mark writes his, his, his gospel in a time of incredible trauma, in a time of incredible loss. Mark writes it in, res- in this time where in response to Jewish peasants who were forming an uprising against Rome, trying to push back on oppressive taxes and um, the Roman brutality that had been felt for decades prior to, Mark writes that in response to this uprising, the Romans started to push back. Not only did they destroy Jerusalem, they also demolished the temple, which, mind you, is not just the heart of that city. It's also the heart of its citizens. The temple was the soul of the Jewish people. It still is to this day. And so when you think about that context, think about what you experienced when you saw the World Trade Center collapse. Think about what went on inside of you when you saw uh, white supremacists marching through Charlottesville. You were here, that was happening over there, and yet somehow it happening over there, even though it didn't change anything tangibly in your life, it somehow is changing everything about your life. You feel it in a different way. Mark talks about this happening at this time, and the experience of the Jewish people when they watched the Romans raise their city, they watched a specific group from the Roman military do it. There was the 10th legion, uh, whose um, especially antagonistic behavior. They actually had a team mascot that was a pig, a, a religiously known unclean animal of the Jewish people. After they raised that city, the Emperor Nero took the 10th legion and he sent them to another part of the, of the Roman world to make this punctuation of power explicitly clear, to make sure that we're going to make this move to make sure that no more rebels will ever dare to make a move. We're going to flex our muscles to make sure that their muscles remain unflexed. Nero puts them in the country of the Gerasenes. He positions them in this place. And in fact, what happens when they get there, the 10th legion in particular, is they walk in and the Romans set up camp and the uprisings continue. But the Romans are quick to shut it down. Over 1,000 freedom fighters are killed in, on the spot. Their women and children are taken captive. Their houses are vandalized. And eventually the whole city in, that surrounded the country of the Gerasenes was completely burnt to the ground. In its place, we have these 10 confederated cities that popped up, which history remembers now as the Decapolis. These are the, this is the spot where if you were a Roman soldier that just conf- inflicted all of this violence, inflicted all of this trauma onto the people, you were rewarded with this space to live out the rest of your days in peace and retirement. You never had to buy a drink when you were in the country of the Gerasenes. Nobody ever questioned your ethics when you were in the country of the Gerasenes. There were songs that were being sung in your honor. There were um, anthems being lifted to praise your name. That is what is happening in the country of the Gerasenes. The Decapolis became not just the center of military and political power, it is also where soldiers were praised and where evil was being normalized. 
This is where the empire would be celebrated, where the victory would be perpetually run. It's in this place of pain and trauma where it's just supposed to be business as usual, where Jesus runs into somebody who's been run out, where Jesus runs into somebody who did not fit into a society like that. Jesus and his boys in Mark 5, they get to the beach, and upon arrival, there is this man who is coming at them and from the tombs. He is butt naked. He's got cuts all over his body. His hair has been pulled out of his scalp. There are like chains dangling around his ankle. And the scriptures say that night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, when we think about, like, demons in our Western minds, we tend to think of, like, the Exorcist movies or the Exorcist of Emily Rose or Casper the Ghost or something of that sort. And there might actually be some, like, historical truths to different cultures that have experienced these types of things. But most scholars would look at the, how demonic possession is presented in the pages of Scripture, and they would actually say that it represents cultural oppression manifesting in a localized body. In other words, as a storytelling technique, what is happening in the bodies of many around them is on full display in this one body before you. In this snapshot of one person, we get to see the sickness of an entire people. And so in this way, when you consider this text and all that Mark is trying to say about what's going on in the country of the garrison, this man who's coming at Jesus, butt naked, cuts all over, hair pulled out of his head and chains dangling at his feet, this man who is behaving like a monster is actually more of a mirror revealing the mess that the people are in. And try as hard as you like, and trust me, I have tried, if you are standing in front of a mirror and you don't like what you see, the problem isn't with the mirror. And yet if you looked on Twitter or Facebook or Matt Moberg's diary, you would quickly assume that it is. Because our collective trash can that we all dismiss our problematic people inside of It operates under the assumption that misbehaving mirrors should be quickly eliminated, erased, removed. They need to be gone. Yes, this story right here that we see in the country of Gerasenes, it is over 2,000 years ago, and yet not much has really changed. We still chain up those who disturb our peace without considering whether or not our form of peace is actually disturbing. I'm not trying to get rid of autonomy. I'm not trying to get rid of personal responsibility. I've said that once. I think it's worth saying it once more. But we need to be talking about when we think about justice, is it driven by revenge? Is it driven by retribution? Or is it actually in pursuit of redemption and restoration? Because there is a difference between the two. More often than not, it's, it's, it's the first and not the last. More often than not, it's about how do I get even, not how do we all get better. And more often than not, we do this when we find people who are either criminally or culturally offensive. We get them out of here because we know that inside of that monster is a mirror and we would rather dismiss them than be actually diagnosed by them. Then actually have to deal with the thing behind the thing, the strings behind the puppet. If we can denounce, for example, every mass shooter as suffering just from mental illness, then we don't have to talk about how entertaining we find violence to be in our society. If we can denounce the racists who get caught on camera saying racist things, then people like me, we don't have to talk about how profitable white supremacy actually has been in our lives. If I can find a pulpit and come before you and point at somebody like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump and talk about how their misogynistic endeavors is is gross, it is disgusting, it is dehumanizing, it is evil, then I don't have to talk about 
the patriarchy that exists in my own home, why Lauren is at home right now with the kids, why she does the dishes, why di- whatever the thing may be, how are these, normal, these normalized things that we have learned to call peace actually disturbing? Are we allowing the monsters that we dismiss to be also the mirrors that diagnose us, to bring us into a better version of who we actually are? The problem is that we will never move restoratively to get to the thing behind the thing if we are all reactively moving to get rid of the thing. If we're just trying to get it out of here as soon as possible. And in our culture, if you actually break it down, tangent, but if you break it down, we're kind of trained to take this approach. I mean, think about the death penalty. The death penalty tells you that if somebody does something heinous, wrong, ugly, the best way to figure out and fix this problem, do a course correction of sorts, is to eliminate that person. And so we learn that on a big scale. Let me localize it and bring it more intimately. Think about being a parent. Think about being parented. Think about your experience as a child when you were put in time out. When you did something that was non-compliant with your parents' desires or wishes, you were told that you need to be sent away so that your behavior can be changed. But at what point does somebody go in there and ask why that behavior was on display in the first place? What was the relational need that was not being met? What was, the, what was the impetus behind the action? Because every form of pathology that we see inside of all of us, it all comes with a purpose attached. Every form of problematic behavior that disturbs our peace, there is a function to it. I have a friend, just telling Debbie this before this, I have a friend who works with people who um, struggle with eating disorders. And she said, it's really interesting, Matt, that um, most of the people who come into my office They struggle with the eating disorder, and it's unique to them, but one of the commonalities is they all have chaotic and unpredictable lives. And so when they take on this eating disorder, that is the pathology, but the purpose behind it is to gain some kind of control over at least this. I can control what comes into my body. I can control what comes out of my body. I can at least gain control here. That is true not just about eating disorders. It is true about every addiction, every form of violence, why some people lie more than others, what is the greed, why some people cannot admit that they are weak and they don't have it all figured out. There is a reason behind it. But if you never get to the problem behind the person, you're just going to try to get rid of the person. You'll never get to the problem. And then you get rid of this person, which you no longer have to face, but the problem is still something that you never got to fix. We're having all of these problems that we never get to fix. All these things that we are sending out to the graves to run along in the hills, chaining them up, but they're not staying down. They're not actually being restrained because they're not actually being resolved. We're not in pursuit of redemption. We're in pursuit of retribution. We don't want to deal with our own stuff, and so we want to just dismiss them. This is why Obama is on such a kick right now. If you watch him on any of his speaking tour gigs, he always goes after this point where he talks about how easy it is and how unproductive it is for woke culture to get up on their their social media pulpit and say something condemning about another person without ever confessing their own complicity inside of it. If we don't get to the problem behind the person, we're, we're not getting anywhere. It's not actually moving the dial. Just because it feels good to be sassy on social media while you're watching The Bachelor at, at home, it doesn't actually mean that it's good for us. And here's what's in it. Talk to my wife, therapist. This is certified, endorsed information here. If you actually understand um, how we evolve, how we develop, how lives are changed, transformed, moved from point A to point B, there are no non-traumatic ways to flip the switch and transform a person without that action further fragmenting them from themselves. Shaming someone out of the land and into the tombs and into the hills, it actually 
is antithetical to the aim of redemption because it only compounds the pain and adds more pain to the already existing problem that produced the first problem in the first place. It is the same thing as, as pouring salt on the wound and treating it as if it's a solution. It's not. Because at the end of the day, where is that, where is that pain going to go? Yes, you can get rid of it, but you're not getting rid of the problem. And so the man might be gone, but now he might not be cutting you, but he is cutting himself. Now he is pulling out his own hair. Just because you didn't face it doesn't mean you fixed it. And so this is my thing about cancel culture that we live in right now is that we can, I get the, the call and the place to hold people in power accountable. I get the, the impetus of mishpah to speak out and name the demons for what they are. But cancer culture operates on this, on this dicey terms that if you believe in cancer culture, you can't simultaneously believe in redemptive justice. You can't believe in res- restoration. To believe in cancel culture is to forfeit any kind of belief that you have in restorative justice. And might I say any claim you have to mishpah. And might I also say any fidelity you are practicing with Jesus. Because Jesus, when he sees the man, he doesn't just try to eliminate the noise. He asks questions about the name. This man approaches Jesus and Jesus comes at him with no chains. He doesn't come at him with cash to keep him quiet. He doesn't say, get away from me, you sicko. He, he actually just goes and says, what's your name? Tell me your story. And the man says, my name is Legion. Legion is a term that was exclusively and only used to tie it to the Romans, the military branch. This is not like a, a quantitative term to say there's a lot of us in here. This is him saying, that I, I am the problems that are, uh, that are oppressing our people behind me, I can't just stay quiet and suppress them within me. And so I am so intimately tied to the problems out here that I am now becoming the problem out there right in front of you right here. It's localized. It's on full display. And the text reads this. The man, after naming himself Legion, he begged Jesus again and again, please don't send them out of the area. That's the whole reason why the Romans were there, is to be a presence in that area and subdue any uprisings. Remember the band of of the 10th Legion in Jerusalem? Read this now. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. Don't miss this. There is an impure spirit named legion, a Roman term for a military group. It's not a quantitative shortcut. It is a Roman term for a military group. They're being asked to be sent into a herd of pigs, the unclean animal and the team mascot for the 10th legion that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple within. And they go off the cliff and into the sea. And it's as if Mark is trying to paint this political satire to say that once we understand and can remove the problem from the person and not just the person with the problem, the problem will eat itself. The problem will end on its own terms. The problem will no longer be able to hurt others. It will come to an end and self-extinguish. And what we know from history is that that's true because our liberation is bound up in one another. Lilla Watson, she says this, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. It's very easy to love the victims of the villains, but it's just as important to love the victims in the villains. To look for the wounded child inside of the oppressive person. Because it is the way of Christ. It is the call of Mishpah. 
Jesus at the end of his life, he's lifted up on a cross, nails in his arms, and he looks down at the people who are lifting him up and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing right now. The only reason why they're acting in such an unlovely way is because they do not know how loved they actually are. And so even if my blood is going to be on their hands, I will not cease from holding them in mine. I will not stop from extending my grace and your compassion to them because they have no idea who they are. And if they don't know who they are, they don't know what they're doing. May we be a people who are slower to condemn other individuals and more committed to casting out invitations, to bringing people in instead of just canceling people from without. I love this idea of the thing behind the thing. And fundamental to our beliefs is this idea that every person is created in the image of God. And therefore, we are called to see the humanity in one another, to see each other. And the beauty of our faith is that we follow a God, this Jesus that did just that. He saw the humanity in each and every person. The night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And so that's what we do. When we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we remember a God who sees us who knows us, who calls us his beloved. And what we need to remember is that he sees each and every one of his creation and calls them his beloved. So as you take your bread and you dip it into your cup, hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And now together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.